Chapter Nine of the Morgansons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgansons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Nine. Aunt Mercy had not introduced me to Miss Black as the daughter of Locke Morganson, the richest man in Surrey but simply as her niece. Her pride prevented her from making any exhibition of my antecedents, which was wise, considering that I had none. My grandfather, John Morganson, was a nobody, merely a co. And though my great-grandfather, Locke Morganson, was worthy to be called a somebody, it was not in his destiny to make a stir in the world. Many of the families of my Barmouth schoolmates had the fulcrum of a moneyed grandfather. The knowledge of the girls did not extend to that period in the family history when its patriarchs started in the pursuit of gain. Elmira Sawyer, one of Miss Black's pupils, never heard that her grandfather, Black Peter, as he was called, had made excursions, in an earlier part of his life, on the River Congo, or that he was familiar with the soundings of Luango Bay. As he returned from his voyages, bringing more and more money, he enlarged his estate and grew more and more respectable, retiring at last from the sea to become a worthy landsman. He paid taxes to church and state, and even had a silver communion cup among the pewter service used on the occasion of the Lord's Supper. But he was never brought to the approval of that project of the Congregational Churches, the colonization of the blacks to Liberia. Neither was Priscilla Allen, aware that the pink calico in which I first saw her was remotely owing to West India rum. Nor did Charlotte Alden, the proudest girl in the school, know that her grandfather's, Squire Alden's, stepping-stone to fortune was the loss of the brig Capricorn, which was wrecked in the vicinity of a comfortable port on her passage out to the whaling-ground. An auger had been added to the meagre outfit, and long after the sea had leaked through the hole, bored through her bottom, and swallowed her, and the insurance had been paid, the truth leaked out that the captain had received instructions, which had been fulfilled, whereupon two insurance companies went to law with him, and a suit ensued, which ended in their paying costs, in addition to what they had before paid Squire Alden, who winked in a derisive manner at the board of directors when he received his cheque. There were others who belonged in the category of decayed families, as exclusive as they were shabby. There were parvenus, which included myself. When I entered the school it was divided into clans, each with its spites, jealousies, and emulations. Its esprit de corps, however, was developed at my arrival. The girls united against me, and though I perceived, when I compared myself with them, that they were partly right in their opinions, their ridicule stupefied and crushed me. They were trained, intelligent, and adroit. I, uncouth, ignorant, and without tact. It was impossible for Miss Black not to be affected by the general feeling in regard to me. Her pupils knew sooner than I that she sympathized with them. She embarrassed me when I should have despised her, at first her regiment surprised, then filled me with a dumb, clouded anger which made me appear apathetic. 
Miss Emily Black was a young woman, and, I thought, a handsome one. She had crenellated black hair, large black eyes, a Roman nose, and long white teeth. She bit her nails when annoyed, and when her superiority made her perceive the mental darkness of others, she often laughed. Being pious, she conducted her school after the theologic pattern of the Nipswich Seminary, at which she had been educated. She opened the school each day with a religious exercise, reading something from the Bible, and commenting upon it, or questioning us regarding our ideas of what she read. She often selected the character of David, and was persistent in her efforts to explain and reconcile the discrepancies in the history of the royal son of Israel. "'Miss C. Morganson, we will call you,' she said in our first interview. "'The name of Cassandra is too peculiar. "'My grandfather liked the name. "'My sister's is Veronica. "'Do you like that better?' "'It is of no consequence in the premises what your sister may be named,' she replied, running her eyes over me. "'What will she study, Miss Warren?' "'Aunt Mercy's recollections of my studies were dim, and her knowledge of my school days were not calculated to prepossess a teacher in my favour. But after a moment's delay she said, "'What do you think best?' "'Very well,' she answered. I will endeavour to fill my Christian duty towards her. We will return to the schoolroom. We had held the conversation in the porch, and now Aunt Mercy gave me a nod of encouragement, and bidding Miss Black good day, departed, looking behind her as long as possible. I followed my teacher. As she opened the door, forty eyes were levelled at me. My hands were in my way suddenly. My feet impeded my progress. How could I pass that wall of eyes? A wisp of my dry, rough hair fell on my neck and tickled it. As I tried to poke it under my comb, I glanced at the faces before me. How spirited and delicate they were! The creatures had their heads dressed as if they were at a party, in curls or braids and ribbons. An open, blank, Noli metangere expression met my perturbed glance. I stood still, but my head went round. Miss Black mounted her desk and surveyed the schoolroom. Miss Charlotte Alden, the desk next you is vacant. Miss C. Morganson, the new pupil, may take it. Miss Charlotte answered, Yes'm, and ostentatiously swept away an accumulation of pencils, sponges, papers, and books to make room for me. I took the seat, previously stumbling against her, whereat all the girls, whose regards were fixed upon me, smiled. That was my initiation. The first day I was left to myself to make studies. The schoolroom was in the vestry of the church, a building near Granther's house. Each girl had a desk before her. Miss Black occupied a high stool in a square box where she heard single recitations or lectured a pupil. The vestry yard, where the girls romped and exercised with skipping rope, a swing and a set of tilting boards, commanded a view of Granther's premises. His street windows were exposed to the fire of their eyes and tongues. After I went home, I examined myself in the glass, and drew an unfavourable conclusion from the inspection. 
My hair was parted zigzag. One shoulder was higher than the other. My dress came up to my chin and slipped down to my shoulder blades. I was all waist. No hips were developed. My hands were red and my nails chipped. I opened the trunk where my wardrobe was packed. What belonged to me was comfortable, in reference to weather and the wash, but not pretty. I found a molasses-coloured silk, called Turk Satin, one of my mother's old dresses made over for me, or an invidious selection of hers from the purchases of father, who sometimes made a mistake in taste, owing to the misrepresentations of shopkeepers or milliners. While thus engaged, Aunt Mercy came for me, and began to scold when she saw that I had tumbled my clothes out of the trunk. "'Aunt Mercy, these things are horrid, all of them. Look at this shawl,' and I unrolled a square silk fabric the colour of a sick orange. "'Where did this come from?' "'Saints upon earth!' she exclaimed. "'Your father bought it at the best store in New York. It was costly.' "'Now tell me, why do the pantalettes of those girls look so graceful?' They do not twirl round the ankle like a rope, as mine do. "'I can't say,' she answered with a sigh. "'But you ought to wear long dresses. Now yours are tucked, and could be let down. "'And these red prunella boots, they look like boiled crabs.' I put them on, and walked round the room crab fashion, till she laughed hysterically. "'Miss Charlotte Alden wears French kid slippers every day, and I must wear mine.' "'No,' she said, "'you must only wear them to church. "'I shall talk to Father about that when he comes here next. "'Cassie, did Charlotte Alden speak to you today?' "'No, but she made an acquaintance by stairs. "'Well, never mind if she says anything unpleasant to you. "'The Aldens are a high set. "'Are they higher than we are in Surrey? "'Have they heard of my father, who was equal to the President? "'We are all equal in the sight of God.' "'You do not look as if you thought so, Aunt Mercy. "'Why do you say things in Barmouth you never said in Surrey? "'Come downstairs, Cassandra, and help me finish the dishes.' "'Our conversation was ended, "'but I still had my thoughts on the clothes question "'and revolved my plans. "'After the morning exercises the next day, "'Miss Black called me to her desk. "'I think,' she said, "'you had better study geology.' It is important, for it will lead your mind up from nature to nature's God. My young ladies have finished their studies in that direction. Therefore you will recite alone, once a day. Yes, am I replied. But it was the first time I had heard of geology. The compendium she gave me must have been dull and dry. I could not get its lessons perfectly. It never inspired me with any interest for land or sea. I could not associate any of its terms or descriptions with a great rock under Granther's house. It was not Miss Black to open the nodules of my understanding with her hammer of instruction. She proposed botany also. The young ladies made botanical excursions to the fields and woods outside Barmouth. I might as well join the class at once. It was now in the family of legumes. I accompanied the class on one excursion. Not a soul appeared to know that I was present, and I declined going again. Composition I must write once a month. A few more details close the interview. 
I mentioned in it that my father desired me to study arithmetic. Miss Black placed me in a class. But her interests were in the higher and more elegant branches of education. I made no more advance in the humble walks of learning than in those adorned by the dissection of flowers, the disruption of rocks, or the graces of composition. Though I entered upon my duties under protest, I soon became accustomed to their routine, and the rest of my life seemed more like a dream of the future than a realization of the present. I refused to go home at the end of the month. I preferred waiting, I said, to the end of the year. I was not urged to change my mind. Neither was I applauded for my resolution. The day that I could have gone home, I asked Father to drive me to Milford, on the opposite side of the river which ran by Barmouth. I shut my eyes tight when the horse struck the boards of the long wooden bridge between the towns, and opened them when we stopped at an inn by the waterside of Milford. Father took me into a parlour, where sat a handsome, fat woman hemming towels. "'Is that you, Morgeson?' she said. "'Is this your daughter?' "'Yes. Can I leave her with you while I go to the bank? She has not been here before.' "'Lord a mercy on us! You clip her wings, don't you? Come here, child, and let me pull off your pelisse.' I went to her with a haughty air. It did not please me to hear my father called Morganson by a person unknown to me. She understood my expression, and looked up at my father. They both smiled, and I was vexed with him for his unwarrantable familiarity. Pinching my cheek with her fat fingers, which were covered with red and green rings, she said, "'We shall do very well together. What a pretty pink pelisse, and silver buckles, too!' After father went out, and my bonnet was disposed of, Mrs. Tabor gave me a huge piece of delicious sponge-cake, which softened me somewhat. "'What is your name, dear?' Morganson. "'It is easy to see that.' "'Well, Cassandra.' "'Oh, what a lovely name!' And she drew from her work-basket a paper-covered book. "'There is no name in this novel half so pretty. I wish the heroine's name had been Cassandra instead of Aldebrandt.' "'Let me see it,' I begged. "'There is a horrid monk in it.' But she gave it to me, and was presently called out. I devoured its pages, and for the only time in that year of Barmouth life I forgot my own wants and woes. She saw my interest in the book when she came back, and coaxed it from me, offering me more cake, which I accepted. She told me that she had known father for years, and that he kept his horse at the inn stables and dined with her. But I never knew that he had a daughter, she continued. Are you the only child? I have a sister, and after a moment remembered that I had a brother, too, but did not think it a fact necessary to mention. I have no children. But you have novels to read. She laughed, and by the time father returned we were quite chatty. After dinner... I asked him to go to some shops with me. He took me to a jeweller's, and, without consulting me, bought an immense mosaic brooch with a ruined castle on it, and a pretty ring with a gold stone. "'Is there anything more?' he asked. "'You would like?' "'Yes. I want a pink calico dress.' "'Why?' "'Because the girls at Miss Black's wear pink calico.' 
Why not get pink silk? I must have a pink French calico with a three-cornered white cloud on it. It is the fashion. The fashion, he echoed with contempt. But the dress was bought, and we went back to Barmouth. When I appeared in school with my new brooch and ring, the girls crowded round me. "'What does that pin represent? Whose estate?' inquired one with envy in her voice. "'Don't the ring make the blood rush to your hand?' asked another. "'It looks so.' "'Does it?' I answered. "'I'll hold up my hand in the air, as you do, to make it white.' "'What is your father's business?' asked Elmira Sawyer. "'Is he a tailor?' Her insolence made my head swim, but I did not reply. When recess was over a few minutes afterward, I cried under the lid of my desk. These girls overpowered me, for I could not conciliate them, and had no idea of revenge, believing that their ridicule was deserved. But I thought I should like to prove myself respectable. How could I? Granther was a tailor, and I could not demean myself by assuring them that my father was a gentleman. In the course of a month, Aunt Mercy had my pink calico made up by the best dressmaker in Barmouth. When I put it on, I thought I looked better than I had ever had before, and went into school triumphantly with it. The girl surveyed me in silence, but criticized me. At last, Charlotte Alden asked me in a whisper if old Mr. Warren made my dress. She wrote on a piece of paper in large letters, "'Girls, don't let's wear our pink calicoes again,' and pushing it over to Elmira Sawyer, made signs that the paper should be passed to all the girls. They read it, and turning to Charlotte Alden, nodded. I watched the paper as it made its round, and saw Mary Bennett drop it on the floor with a giggle. It was a rainy day, and we passed the recess indoors. I remained quiet, looking over my lesson. The first period ends with the carboniferous system. The second includes the saliferous and magnesian systems. The third comprises of the oolitic and chalk systems. The fourth... How attentive some people are to their lessons, I heard Charlotte Alden say. Looking up, I saw her near me with Elmira Sawyer. "'What is it that you say?' I asked sharply. "'I am not speaking to you.' "'I am angry,' I said in a low tone, and rising, "'and have borne enough. "'Who are you that you should be angry? "'We have heard about your mother when she was in love, poor thing.' "'I struck her so violent a blow in the face that she staggered backward.' "'You are a liar,' I said, "'and you must let me alone.' Elmira Sawyer turned white and moved away. I threw my book at her. It hit her head, and her comb was broken by my geological systems. There was a stir. Miss Black hurried from her desk, saying, "'Young ladies, what does this mean? "'Miss C. Morganson, your temper equals your vulgarity, I find. "'Take your seat in my desk.' I obeyed her and as we passed Mary Bennett's desk, where I saw the paper fall, I picked it up. "'See the good manners of your favourite, Miss Black. Read it.' She bit her lips as she glanced over it. 
turned back as if to speak to Charlotte Alden, looked at me again, and went on. "'Sit down, Miss C. Morganson, and reflect on the blow you have given. Will you ask pardon?' "'I will not. You know that. I have never resorted to severe punishment yet, but I fear I shall be obliged to in your case.' "'Let me go from here.' I clenched my hands and tried to get up. She held me down on the seat, and we looked close into each other's eyes. "'You are a bad girl.' "'And you are a bad woman,' I replied. "'Mean and cruel.' She made a motion to strike me, but her hand dropped. I felt my nostrils quiver strangely. "'For shame,' she said in a tremulous voice, and turned away. I sat on the bench at the back of the desk, heartily tired, until school was dismissed. As Charlotte Alden passed out, curtsying, Miss Black said she hoped she would extend a Christian forgiveness to Miss C. Morganson for her unladylike behaviour. Miss C. Morganson is a peculiar case. She gave her a meaning look, which was not lost upon me. Charlotte answered, Certainly, and bowed to me gracefully whereat I felt a fresh sense of my demerits, and concluded that I was worsted in the fray. Miss Black made no explanation of the affair. It was dropped, and none of the girls alluded to it by hint or look afterward. When I told Aunt Mercy of it, she turned pale, and said she knew what Charlotte Alden meant, and that perhaps Mother would tell me in good time. We had a good many troubles in our young days, Cassie. End of chapter 9